Australia in four, the United States in five. Off, McKenzie at the bottom, Stubbins above her, Schlanger in six, then to the yellow lane, Henry. Queen start, Newell's got into the water quickly, but so did Joyce. For short of Germany was away well. They'll go to the wall all together, pick that one. Bloomer in fact, ahead of Manuel and Hirsch Amenya. What a shot, Peterson stumps her authority on another 200 breaststroke. Now Henry is starting to come at her. Henry's throwing Linden down. Linden and Henry. Henry and Linden. They hit it. Jody Henry of Australia shading. Jenny Thompson has taken the lead here. The Australians have only won this race once. It was with Dawn Fraser in 1956. Henry's moving away. She's going to win it for Australia. This has been a remarkable last leg. Jody Henry is going to bring Australia home for what will be yes! big <laughs> And welcome once again to the Shannon Rollison podcast for another week. And boy, do we have a special one for you today as I'm joined by firstly, the star of the podcast, the man with the stories and one of the best swimming minds in the business, Mr. Shannon Rollison. And Shannon, today we are joined by a very special guest, Mr. Alan Thompson, former Australian head coach, a man who's led the Australian swim team in the past to you know, one of the most successful Olympic uh, of all time in, in 2008, a feat Tomo only just recently, I think, equaled in, in Tokyo. Um, and Alan Thompson, one of the most respected men in our business. Um, boys, welcome. Uh, Al, thank you very much. Actually, I shouldn't call you Al because I still, you're still my coach. So I'm, I'm not <laughs> going to call you Tomo. It's, it's Alan to me. But boys, how are we? <laughs> very well. Very well in this early rise. The day before I go back to coaching. <laughs> How are you, Alan? I'm good, thanks. And thank you for having me on. Uh, thank you. Uh, looking forward to it. First time uh, behind the, the mic asking some questions. So we'll see how we go. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Al, mate, you may not be aware, but here on the Shannon Rollison podcast, each week we discuss, uh, you know, a topic uh, from our sports great history, and we go through some some fantastic stories that Shannon's been a part of. And this week, for all the listeners out there, we will be picking the brain of Mr. Alan Thompson, uh, which is a great treat for everyone, a great treat for me, because eventually I'm about to shut my mouth and sit back and listen to you boys have a chat now i know you two have, have known each other for a long time al knowing you're coming on today were you looking forward to reliving some stories with shannon oh yeah yeah I, yeah shannon and i have been uh, great uh adversaries in the coaching field but also then great teammates on the australian swimming team and uh you know i really valued shannon's observations and input in when i was the head coach and uh, uh he's a cranky little thing so uh he, he uh <laughs> kept me on track all the time and certainly made me keep thinking. And I think that's uh, certainly an important part of um, the success we had on the Australian swimming team um, across those years. Uh, it, it's very important uh, uh, not to think you know everything and, and you need to have good, uh, valuable people that you can trust their input. And uh, Shannon was certainly one of those through my tenure. Yeah, no, it was, it, it was good, wasn't it? Um, like I was sort of saying, um, when I was talking about Jody the other week, you look back on relationships, uh, and and at the time you don't realise how special they are. And you know the one thing that Alan and I had was brutal honesty, a bit like Jody and I had as well. And you need to be able to 
you know, speak your mind without offending people and, and, um, and Alan, you know, he'd ask me a question and I'd give him what I thought and, and, uh, you know, we'd move forward from that. That's so much, uh, so much better than uh, uh, not, not talking the truth and not saying what you think. You know, a lot of people, um, you know, I tried to have that sort of environment in a swim team where everyone could contribute. And uh, yeah, ultimately it was my decision to, to where we went. But I feel, always felt that it was, it was always better to make those decisions with all the information um, around. You know, some people are, are, are concerned that they can't say what they think. I, I you know, I think I was... Uh, a reasonably strong leader, but I, I think I always had the doors open and uh, uh, to conversation um, about what we what we did. And uh, it was interesting in my early days as the as the head coach. Um, I remember we went to uh, Montreal in two thousand and five for the World Championships, and uh, it was my first as and as uh, the head coach. And uh, it was it, you know you you obviously. Um, yeah, I was confident about going to a World Championships or Olympic Games or that as a coach or, and as a manager of the team. And uh, But it was a different story when you're the head coach because ultimately the responsibility is all yours. And uh, and uh, we did really well. It's, uh, and, and to my understanding, it's still probably the, the most successful World Championship team um, we've had, even though they've added more events to the, mm-hmm. the program nowadays. But... Um, the women um, went off at that meet, didn't they? Absolutely, and uh, we didn't we didn't pick any fifty meter events that that year. That was a little bit controversial. We didn't pick anyone. The, you know, the basically the hundred meter swimmers swam the fifties as well, and uh, I think it might have been one of the first world championships where there was fifty form strokes in there. And um, yeah, so we we went there and and we we did really we did really well. I can't remember the exact number of medals, but it was it was an exceptional meet the medals are spread across and the good thing was that it was it was pretty much uh uh well it was the start of that uh, quadrennial or that olympic cycle and uh, there was a whole lot of new kids in there and i think coming from coming from the athens games there was only a, a small number of the kids on the team were there but we we did really well but i remember at the end of it and uh I do remember having a, a discussion with Shannon on a bus one day when you guys had gone down to do the the fan boat things and we you got back to training right on time or something like that and I had a bit of a blow up there and um, there, there was because uh, uh, we were in Florida for the camp in Florida for the camp and uh, and the guys had gone down to the oh the alligator park the, the Everglades or the alligator yeah, yeah. There and, and uh, anyway, I blew up I blew up when they came back. And, Anyway, anyway, I, I, by the end of it, I, I'm thinking to myself, God, we've got 10 coaches here, you know, you, and there was 10 different personalities and 10 different ways of doing things and, you know, and some guys were really laid back and casual and other guys were really intense and, you know, and obviously I felt I, I my, the way I did things was the best way to do it. And I remember coming home on the plane and I wrote in my book, I said, we've, we've got to change. We've got to change the way these coaches coach, and I, and and uh, um, so basically, what I'm saying, I think every coach has got a coach like I do to make me feel comfortable. And that, as I'm sitting on the plane, as you do on the plane, you've got 15 hours or something to coming home, and you've got to you think and you're doing it. So 
my first thing was everyone's got to change. They've got to be more organised. They've got to be more structured. They've got to do everything like I do. And uh, and then by the time I landed in Sydney, I'd had more notes there. And I go, what makes us better is because these guys are all individual and all different and all contribute to the team in different ways and are all getting success from their athletes doing things different. So why would I want to change? Maybe I'm the one who's got to change and I've got to not try and change these guys to be 10 Alan Thompsons. I've got to let these guys be 10 individuals and I've got to be the person who manages all these different people and keeps them keeps them working together and contributing to the team to ensure that the team's successful. And so the thing I, I was so glad I learned that at my first meet. And uh, I think that stayed with me uh, all the time. Uh, probably one of the and, – and I think we had a fairly good nucleus of coaches in that time too, and I think a lot of those guys got a lot of experience. We did a lot of overseas travel and we did a lot of other, other international meets in between meets and so on. And so we got to meet the athletes and the coaches in that competitive training environment in a whole lot of different – in a whole lot of different scenarios, and uh, it gave me a real good opportunity to know the swimmers, know the coaches, uh, know the support staff, and uh, and I think by the time we finished there in in Beijing, uh, we uh, we navigated it pretty well and, and did pretty well. Yeah, um, you know this the the team this time, you know, certainly uh, uh, won the gold medal tally. They, uh, you know, that was sort of a bit of a hoodoo. The Melbourne Eight gold medals in Melbourne was a hoodoo over us all the time, and we never quite got to achieve that. There were a number of times that we we were close and we had the cattle to do it, but Olympic Games are like they are. They, you know, they, a lot of different things happen there, but um, we, uh, you know, we uh, the team this time achieved 20 medals like we did, uh, but they certainly got more gold medals than we did. And, uh, you know, I, it's interesting how my... Um, feelings about the teams have changed over over the years too. Oh, I was so proud of those guys, um, and you know, there's even a couple of kids uh, on that team who were who were on the team in in Beijing, and um, uh, you know, um, Kate Campbell, Emily, Emily Seabom, and uh, yeah. you know, it was just great to to see those guys uh, in their fourth Olympics. Uh, yeah, they were just kids when they started out. Um, Kate Campbell was, was just a kid in uh, Beijing, um, and and Emily. They were just really young, flighty girls, and and uh, it was it was really uh, uh, really good to see them finish off their career well, and or if they had finished, and um, but uh, and also uh, great to see um, Rowan run the team and and have an Australian in charge of the team and. Uh, and have that success, and uh, in such difficult stages of preparation too, with COVID. So, um, you know, the the management of all that leading into Olympics must have been very difficult. And uh, you know, it seems like the you know again all the coaches and the uh, the swimmers really prepared well and and do well. And I, and, I, and I go back to a thing that I've said: any time Swimming Australia has had some issues, the people who have dragged us back out from the issues and this and gained us success again have been the coaches and uh, 
we've, we've been very fortunate to have, you know, coaches who, who have been able to do that for us. Yeah, the, the, a couple of points there, uh, you know, the, the, the diversity one is a good one. Um, it, it's something that hit me in the face when I went overseas and started coaching overseas. You know, you're unaware of, of your strengths and um, the first thing was our diversity in our coaches and I didn't see that when I was overseas, particularly uh, in Denmark. Um, they were all looking for a one-way answer and um, we, we've had that diversity, I think, all through our history. Um, and the second thing that hit me in the face was was just how well we managed the swim team, which if you had have asked me when I, as I was leaving, you know, what, what our top three things are as a swimming nation, I wouldn't have said that management, but it didn't take me very long to, to realise just how good we manage that swim team and, and had done for so long. Mm. Um, so, and, and, oh, and on that, you know, you're one of the, the rare guys who's, who've been on a team, Olympic team as a manager as a swim coach and also as a head coach. Was it was it 2000 your first or was it 96? I went to 96 as a home coach. So um, uh, Trent Stee, um, oh, yeah, yeah. Who, uh, who was a member of our club and he trained most of his time in, uh, at Cabramatta initially with Reg and uh, and then he, he followed Reg down to the AAS. But um, in those days, the AAS kids came home for probably two months across the Christmas period of time, and um, and uh, so Trent would come to Campbelltown and train with us. And uh, so, whilst I, you know, I I lay no claim at all to Trent's success and selection on the '96 Olympic team, I was his home coach essentially. So um, um, I went to uh, went to the '96 Olympics and um, and bought all my tickets for the for the competition, and and then ended up. Um, uh, Coatsy uh, got me accreditation, and uh, so I ended up selling selling my tickets, and uh, and was lucky enough to get involved. You know, it was not it was one of those sort of accreditations where you got to go to the meet, and uh, and uh, but you didn't get in, you, or you could get into the village, but you didn't have the knives and forks on your accreditation, so you couldn't eat there and <laughs> couldn't sleep there, but you could go in there and. Um, yeah. And you know, I had my own accommodation outside, so I probably had the best of both worlds, really, for that one. And um, you know, and I think that was really a um, you know, 90, 92 Olympics were, were not that great for us. Um, we had a, you know, you had a couple of stars coming through like Perkins, and uh, and you could see that there was a bit on the horizon there. But Don only came back to Australia in '89, um, and so that was his um, uh, really his first Olympics on his return. And um, and then '96 was um, you know first and second and trying to fly for Tria and uh, and Susie and um, uh, Sam Riley was going pretty well then Kieran Kieran won from lane eight Dan Kowalski won a medal in the two four and fifteen and you know you could just see that there was there was something on the horizon um, you know I was I, I think I was really lucky in my career my first um, my first team was a um, uh, was a, uh, a a team in 1991 where we went to uh, uh, Barcelona. It was a like a pre-Olympic camp, and uh, we had a we had a training camp in Barcelona. And uh, John Carew was the head coach, and 
Ken Wood was on the team, uh, Shuri and myself were on the team, and uh, and then Don flew in for the for the meet in Rome. We went from Barcelona into Rome to that um, Seven Hills meet uh, yeah. in Rome, and uh, and you could and and you know when I when I got home from there, it was it was it was a sort of a mixed emotions. It was so great to be on the there. You know, that was your dream. You get on the Australian team, but the in '91, it was nowhere near as professional as the team is now, or or was when when we were on the team, Shannon. Um, and uh, yeah, there were some things there that I I struggled struggled with, and um, the lack of respect for someone like John Carew and Ken Wood uh, from the athletes on the team and um, was disappointing. Um, but it was great to see across my time in '91. I think I came through probably the greatest improvement in in Australian swimming, you know, from 91 through to the 92 Olympics, which was okay, then to 96, which was a big improvement. Um, and then uh, then into Sydney, you know, like the hype around Sydney was unbelievable. And um, yeah. And then into Athens where we, we rolled on from Sydney and ended up with a couple more medals. And then we went to Beijing and, and uh, got a few more again. So, um, you know, it was a really good... 20 years in a uh, good 20 years. And I, and I think we can't um, underestimate the influence Talbot had on that, um, on that, that, and especially that initial period of time, right through to 2001 when he retired. Um, yeah. He, uh, he started off with, with the, uh, the big stick and he wielded that big stick all the way through to, uh, <laughs> to 2000. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, um, it was team spirit by a big stick, and uh, and it was just um, it was interesting. I, m- I remember on the last night of the uh, of the Olympics um, in Sydney, I was standing on the on the uh, in the I think there must have been the medley relays on the last night, and I was standing on the pool deck grandstand with um, Chris Feidler and and Kieran Perkins, and they'd been fairly outspoken to me about. Um, the 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 way Don ran the team and what they had to do and didn't have to do and all this sort of stuff. And uh, after we we won a medal on that last night, um, Chris Feiler tapped me on the shoulder and he said, "Tomo, I get it now." Yeah. And because that was such a different thing, you know, we were on the pool deck and it, you know, you know, Glenn Tasker was running the meet. We were breaking all the rules and. You know, having fluffy toys on there and flags, and you weren't supposed to, and doing the arches with the when the kids won a medal, and all those things that you're not supposed to do at the Olympics. You're supposed to sit down, stay quiet, and do that. And uh, and uh, you know, and it was all it was a team spirit that started off being enforced upon us early in the early nineties. Became um, you know just that cultural decision that everyone had made. They wanted to be part of that uh, that team, and. Uh, we realise the importance of the team at that time as well. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, you know, there's there's different periods that you've got to do, have a different style of leadership. And, you know, I remember you, know, you, you mentioned Trent Steed. I, I had Trent Grant and Angie Kennedy, who I was coaching on my first team at World Shore Course. But I remember in 97 at the Pan Packs, they gave... Don gave me the the four by two team, and, and and no one wanted to even do the relay, you know. Mm. So back in the nineties, relays were like 
they were, people were trying to get out of them. So well, it's interesting know, you say that. Going back to that Seven Hills meet in '91, uh, we had a uh, no one wanted to do the relays. Mm. Everyone just wanted to go home from the from the meet. They didn't want to hang around. And uh, and, and I had um, I had the girls four by one medley relay. Um, had Nicole Livingston, uh, then another Nicole from Aquedot. Trained with Hodgie uh, doing the breaststroke, Fiona Alessandri, yeah, and uh, uh, I can't remember the freestyle. I can't remember who there was a Western Australian girl, but they didn't want to do it. So Nicole ended up going out one oh six in the first leg of the hundred <laughs> back, and uh, and then it was like uh, the young girl from Aquedot really tried hard because she kept Lara Huiville out because. Oh, yeah. I trained with Lara. Lara Huyveld off the team at that by that stage. So she went out and she swam like 110 or something, the 111, and that was pretty good for her at that yeah. stage. And then the butterfly, Fiona Alessandri, who was probably in around 59, did 101 or 102, and then the freestyler went 58 or something like that. So it was it was just ordinary. They missed the final. And uh, on the last day, we had no finalists, no, no finalists. At this Seven Hills meet, which is like one of the Mayor Nostrum meets. Or yeah, something. yeah. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it's just unbelievable. So John, John, um, John ended up putting the kids in the pool and trained them that afternoon instead of going to the finals. But it was just like you say, the people were choosing whether they wanted to be in the relays or not, uh, depending on their own individual swims or whether they wanted to go home early or not. And and probably a lot of the coaches were of the same mindset, whereas by the time we finished, I think everyone was crawling over themselves to be in the relay team. Mm. They're think, fighting about it. The same <laughs> thing you said there, Shannon. No one, at, like in Beijing, no one wanted to do the four by two girls, mm. and because uh, no one thought they could win. Was, I think there was only two people on the team who thought they could win, and they're both on this podcast with you, Robbie. So. Um, and they did, and they won by a long way, and they broke a world record and got a gold medal. And uh, but uh, but I think yeah, that's a, that's a whole different scenario there uh, to what was happening back in the back in the nineties. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, think that, that... I think we changed the culture too. I, I think that um, one of the things I noticed with Don was he he grew the depth of his team um, through the the number of kids who could swim relays. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think that when I started back again in um, you know um, in two thousand and uh, late four or five, um, that was one thing I wanted to do too because I thought we'd lost a bit of that in that in you know previous three years. Um, got a little bit selfish again. I think everyone felt they couldn't change what was going on in those years, so they became a little bit insular. So um, you know I, I always saw the success of. Uh, of the relays and uh, wanted to uh, wanted to build that up again and I, you know and I think we had something like you know seventy percent of the kids on the on the Olympic team in Beijing went home with a medal and that was a lot to do with uh, a lot to do with the participation in the relays as well. Yeah, well, it was what six from six, and yes. which was the goal. And yeah, yeah, yeah. During, during that time, there, yeah, you know, we had um, we had. Uh, we had a number of team goals that we uh, that we wanted to achieve, and one of them was winning six six real winning a medal in six relays. And I, mm. I'm not sure that's been done in the Olympics again since. No, it hasn't. I mean, it's not 
it's not hard to do. Well, I, I don't. They're always hard, but it's it's not as hard to do at a um, at a Commonwealth Games, or it's uh, you know not as hard to do at a World Championships, or even especially the first one of the cycle. Um, mm. But um, at Olympic Games, it is hard because everyone's on their game there. So um, yeah, it's it's and we also had um, we hadn't we had never repeated uh, once winning a winning a gold medal in an event we hadn't repeated and, and done it again the next Olympics. So um, uh, we did that in the four by one medley. Uh, yeah. We we won that in uh, Athens and. Um, and we did it again in Beijing and the girls. And uh, but those uh, those relays are uh, always, uh, you know, uh, and especially because everyone wants to be in them. It means yeah. the selections have to be right. You can't um, you you can't have any favoritism or any like. You got to pick the best team, and you got to you got to be comfortable that it is your best team. That medley girls team in in. Um in Beijing was very strong. It, it was so strong you could have had people not in that team, and yet, yeah, if they say they had got sick, and you, your second swimmer come in, and they still would have won it. Yeah, you know, they smashed it. Um, yeah, in the four by two, that uh, yeah, that that was a fantastic uh, result. That one, um, we might get to that the story behind that a little bit later. <laughs> hey. Um, yeah, so you were team manager under Don, um, and I remember Don sa- saying to me that you were the best team manager he- he'd ever had. What did you come away from with Don? Yeah, what was his head coach style like? You described yours. Um, uh, yeah, I think he was fairly autocratic. Um, he uh, and and I think it was a different. I think he made us all more professional. I tell you, one of the things that really helped my coaching was being on those teams as a manager, because you got to mix with some of the best coaches that we that we've ever had, and um, and uh, as a manager, you make sure everything. You know, a lot of managers go and sit in the sideline when the when the training's on, and uh, think that's their rest time, I suppose. Um, but I wanted to be a better coach, so I uh, I always just hovered around the coaches, asking questions wanting to know what they were doing, helping them out, timing sets or whatever, and learning. So it was a real, you know, my first um, my first managerial role was in um, uh, 93. Then I ended as an assi- assistant manager, and I ended up being assistant at the 94 World Champs. Um, and then, uh, yeah, then it, it started to go on, and then I became the head manager in 97. Yeah, but Dom was quite autocratic. Um, but also, too, he under- I think he understood, Whilst he wouldn't say it, he understood the differences in coaches, and uh, but he certainly let people know. I think he he was like um, the cultural revolution of coaching in Australia. You know, yeah. um, uh, he brought in the no drinking edict, and um, yeah, and I think that had to happen at that time because um, you know I don't think coaches went off and did stupid things, but I think they probably uh, needed to be reined in a little bit at that stage, you know, and. Um, uh, he, uh, he he was he was quite strict and and quite organised and um, you know and I, I think too we had a we had a, a bit of an affinity because we grew up in the same area. He coached at Bankstown, I coached at Reesby, 
Um, you know, it ended up being three. Uh, there's three swimming coaches came out of Rees, uh, head coaches came out of Reesby swimming pool. The Calvin mm. coach first opened, then Terry Buck coached there. Then I started with Terry, and then I ended up coaching there. So it was, you know, it's, that's an unusual sort of thing that that from one pool comes three Australian head coaches. So um, and also um, Terry trained with Don on occasions as well. So they, it was, uh, yeah, it was a very interesting. My my, my, my lacklustre swimming career though was at Reesby Pool as well with Terry as my coach. So. Um, um, you know, it was it was uh, interesting, but I think Don, uh, yeah, different a different guy. Um, I remember one day we were in uh, we were in a training camp in Orlando, um, in going into the World Shore Course in '95, and um, uh, Don and I had had this huge blue after training one morning, and uh, <laughs> you know he he. He and I, well, we got on really well, to be truthful. But yeah, there were there were a few occasions where we we butted heads, and we had this huge blue, and uh, and uh, we had this, uh, and and like, and Don never never said sorry, never, no. even if he was wrong, he never ever said sorry. <laughs> and then I ended up in a, uh, I had a coffee in a uh, in the coaches. We had a coach, like one of the one of the rooms in the motel was the coaches' room where we had a TV. Video analysis was quite, um, you know, uh, average in those days. But we had a TV and a video recorder and whatever there, and and coaches could go in and watch things and and make a coffee and um, you know we had bagels. I think that was. Um, uh, Jim Fowley might have been his first team on that team, or well, one of his first teams anyway. After he came in from from uh, Canada, and he bought bagels, and no one, none of the Australian coaches ever had bagels before. Anyway, I'm sitting there with Bill Nelson and uh, having a cup of coffee, and um, I got a phone call from Don Talbot, and he says, "Where are you?" And I said, "I'm down in the coach's room, mate, having a coffee." He said, oh, "I might come down and have a coffee with you," and um, Bill was sort of nursing my wounds for me from the morning, and he'd seen it all happen. And uh, we'd been talking, and I said, "Oh, Don's uh, Don's coming down to have a cup of coffee." And he said, oh, "I'll go then." I said, "No, no, it's like, you're right, you know." Anyway, he came down and had it, and sat down and had a cup of coffee and whatever was on TV. We were watching some sports show from America, there. and he uh, he just chatted away and like nothing had ever happened. And, uh, anyway, he got up and walked out, and uh, Bill said to me. And I said, I said, what do you reckon about that? And he said, come on. He said, that's as close to an apology as you're ever going to get from them. <laughs> so, do you remember that? Um, yeah, I, I, I was fortunate for someone of my age to spend a lot of time with Don. And um, and I even rang him when I was trying to decide whether I would take the, 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 the Danish um, job and, um, and asked his opinion and stuff. But... Um, do you remember that blue I had with him in Athens? Uh, yeah, fill me in. I probably do. <laughs> that was like 2004. So Alice Mills and, and Melissa Mitchell had to do yes. a swim-off for the relay. Yes. And one one was in lane three and the other one was in seven. And, and Alice had gone under two minutes for the first time and, and ends up on the team. And I was pretty stoked about her swim. And it was the night that Jody was swimming the final of, of the 100 free. 
Yeah, I remember it was right after the heats in the morning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and he's had a go at me, but he about the way Alice swam it, but he had Melissa Mitchell's splits. splits. <laughs> so he was just completely wrong, you know. <laughs> and then once he realised he was completely wrong, he, you know, would, would exchange words. So I went to get the the timing sheet off Tim Kerrison and I came back and I grabbed him and uh, he was talking to Jan Cameron and Clark Perry who'd seen the whole thing and I gave him what for about the splits and stuff, told him never to tap me on the head again. (laughs) I think you tried to stop me or something. (laughs) I remember you talking to me and you ran up those stairs by the swim down pool and then ran back down to go for another. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, so I come in that night on the bus with Clark Perry, and uh, so it's my, my biggest, you know, final session of my career at that point. And um, we're walking in, and Don's standing at the at the gate, and uh, he, he didn't know what bus I was on. I suppose he was just going to stay there, you know, until I, I came in. And I was walking up to him. And he says, uh, says g'day, and I said, g'day, Don. And he said, are we good? And I said, yeah, we're good. And he said, good luck tonight. And uh, off we went. And Clark Perry, yeah, without even missing a stride, goes, I think that's the closest I've ever heard him say sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I learned a lot off Don. He, oh, yeah. he was great. So Yeah, you, you learn when you're going through your career, you learn what to do. And you've also learned what not to do. Yeah. And I think if you can take those things and uh, combine them together, and then that's what improves us all, I suppose, you know. And, uh, um, you know, I'd hate to be a person who doesn't, you know, I still try and learn every day. Yeah. Try and learn something from somebody every day. And that's why I've been so frustrated in this lockdown period now that you don't get to mix or, um, you know, interact with people. Um, But, uh, yeah, but certainly, uh, yeah, there was a lot of things I learned from Don, but there was still a few things I learned what not to do from Don as well. You know? Yeah. Everyone's got their strengths and weaknesses, haven't they? And, yeah, yeah, you talked about it before, your leadership style, and it's certainly one that I, you know, coming up as a young coach um, under Don and, and yourself, and um, I tried to do that at the AIS, and and, uh, and when I went into Denmark, um but what I like, I, I like strong leaders, uh, and, and I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure we've got the balance right now. And just everyone has to have a say, and then everyone, you know, we end up with the lukewarm um, decision. And I think, you know, and, and you certainly, you, you'd ask my opinion, and, and I'm, and I'm sure you asked as you said, you know, Rowan, and you'd go through around around the traps and then you'd make the decision. Yeah. Uh, I had about three or first. four. I had about three or four people, yeah. depending on the time, who was who was on the teams, and that you value their you value their opinion because you know and especially because you know it's the truth. Yeah. There's other people on the team that you you might get an you might get an opinion on, but you were never sure whether it was uh, the truth or or not. And, uh, you know, that was probably... Um, or their best interest. They were giving you what they was going to reflect in their best interest. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and especially on, you know, we'd pick relay coaches to look after relay teams. In my time as head coach, that's where I found 
the most wishy-washy decision-making process amongst <laughs> those guys was that they, they, they often wanted to have a bit here and a bit here. They wanted, they didn't, they didn't want to, um, didn't want to make that definitive uh, decision. And I probably learnt that in, I, I had the girls medley relay in uh, Athens mm. and um, it, it was, in general, it was a pretty, pretty easy team. You know, Gian Rooney was a backstroker. Fred um, Thomas was the butterflyer and I think Jody was the freestyler. Um, the breaststroke was the issue. Mm. Uh, because you had Liesl Jones and Brooke Hanson in there and, um, you know, and I had to make a decision and Brooke had won the silver medal, Liesl the bronze medal, but Liesl had gone faster in the semi-final and, and, and you know, Nugget came to me and said, what do you, what do you think? And, um, and you know, Nugget had coached Brooke as well and, uh, and uh, I, I reckon that might have been part of the reason why he asked me to be the coach on that team because he knew because I thought I'd be the coach on with Jimmy Piper in the in the four by one men's team. That's what mm-hmm. I that's what I thought, but I, I didn't. But um and in the end it's probably good to get coaches who don't have an, an interest in that team. But uh anyway I ended up picking Lisa and that you know that caused me some you know personal issues as well with because I was quite close with Hanso and you know and, and Sue and uh and even Brooke. But um but I, you know, I had I had to do what I thought was the right thing to do, and you know, and we won a gold medal, broke a world record, and um, you know, and we might have done that with uh, with with Chuck, but we might might not have either. You know, I don't, I don't really know what the outcome would be, but it, that was probably a very difficult decision I had to make, and had to make it. But then when I got to Athens, I couldn't get the coaches to make a decision about their relay teams. It was just so. I think in the end, you know. I'd, I'd listen to what they tell me. I'd listen to to what my you know close contacts were on that team and what they thought, and um, uh, and then in the end, uh, I'd pick the team and uh, and put it in, and and we'd walk away. We in each of the six relays, we walked away. I think with um, uh, agreement on who was in the team. Um, but you know, they're some of the most difficult decisions that we had to make. And uh, I remember the the decisions there that we had in. Um, um, I, I remember the World Championships in Perth in 1998. Um, Don gave the the relay coaches the job of telling the kids who was in the team. So uh, one of the coaches on the team went off and told all the kids who were in the team, but didn't tell the kids who were not in the team. Mm. So we we announced the relay team at the team meeting, and then we had two two kids storm out of the meeting because they thought they should have been in the team. And so one thing I always said to the coaches when I was the head coach was, "I'll I'll deliver the bad news, you deliver the good news." So um, so I'd, if anyone missed out on the team, I'd go and tell them personally. Um, I got to probably say if they got a knock on their hotel room door in the afternoon leading up to the relay, they're probably going, "Oh shit." <laughs> Happening here, but uh, anyway, it uh, I think that was the best way because I, I never wanted that to happen again of someone not knowing, you know, yeah, yeah. they might be upset, but at least they're not finding out in front of their mates at a team meeting, and things like that. yeah. And yeah, one thing that athletes have got to realize is that it's not easy making those decisions, you know, because uh, it comes down to a couple of tents, and you know, I always for one looked at relay history because you had swimmers that could lift. You know, Sarah Ryan was a great example of that. 
and then you had other people that 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 couldn't lift. And um, you know, X Factor in the four by yeah. two in Beijing. Yeah, well, I mean, you gave me the four by two. I had the four by one and the four by two in in Beijing, and I remember that we're at the trials, and, and we just didn't have a standout, did we? Like we just no. had a really solid, very good depth. And um, you came to me and said, "Oh, how many do you want in this relay team?" I said, oh, "I'll get back. I'll get back to you this afternoon." So I went for a walk around Parramatta Park, and uh, and I think I said, to you, "Came up and said seven. And you go seven. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you, you did a great job in in convincing the selectors that we needed it. And I think I we got eight. Yeah, well, I, well, I think was it? Yeah, we, we were after eight, but we had Ricey. She didn't do the final, did she? No. I think she was in. So we, we had her. So we needed seven to, to, to complete the eight. And, and um, I thought the US were going to do this strategy and have a heats team and a finals team, but they didn't. And we were the only ones in the end. And while everyone was racing for a final, our, our top four were sleeping. Uh-huh. Yeah. And um, they came out and smashed them. Yeah. I was. I remember telling Matt Abood the, the story and in the lead up to Rio, he was at a function, and I can't remember the ABC commentator. He was retiring, and he'd done swimming for years. Norman and, May. Uh, who? Norman May. No, no, nah, nah, it was just after him. It was the guy oh. that took over. He had dark hair. Yeah, yeah, Jerry. Um, Jerry, there. Yeah, Jerry. Yeah, Jerry. Um, very good commentator. Anyway, yeah. they asked him what was his favorite Olympic moment and matt came in that afternoon he goes yeah he told me the story he says that he said it was that four by two in beijing you know um because it was a gold medal like we were i think on paper we we're like fourth or fifth yeah you know the bombs missed the final because yeah. they tried they they had three three kids plus one in the in the heat and they ended up coming eighth or not uh ninth or tenth i think yeah ben titley ben titley had that uh and he, he 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 said to them not to. I think um, Joe Joe Jackson had won the medal in the individual. He said, "Don't go flat out." So I think she went three seconds slower than her best time. But one of the things that has happened in relays is is some of the small nations they're they're going flat out just to make the final. You know, their their goal is just to be in that final. So uh, anyway, it, it um, the Brits were out, and that that was in our favour, and and. and yeah, Kylie, uh, Kylie Palmer. She was she was our X factor in that, wasn't she? And we saw that at the World Chalk Course earlier that year when we after, off mm-hmm. the back of trials, she she lifted by three seconds. Yeah. Uh, and um, I remember I was saying to you at that meet, I said, Kylie's got to be in the, in that team. Mm-hmm. And and you said, Well, how are you going to get her in that team if you're not going to if she's not going to do the heat? And I said, I don't know. I've got three months to work it out. <laughs> <laughs> you remember um you remember that um uh jr was over in beijing yeah and, uh, yeah kylie and um bronte barrett oh bronte yeah and uh the day before that really he wanted to take him to another to another place to train yeah because he was trying to get her ready for the 800 <laughs> please no because <laughs> kylie had the 800 uh yeah Later in the meet, yeah, I don't even think she wanted to do it. So <laughs> but it was interesting. Sure. Um, 
uh, on that on that relay team. Um, we had that reunion uh, a couple of years ago up on the Gold Coast. Uh, Bronte and Patty Murphy organised it. And, oh yeah. Uh, and uh, I was I was there you know, later in the evening having a chat with um, uh, Bronte and Linda McKenzie yeah. about uh, the 2007 World Championships when they were the two 200 freestylers and they'd swam so poorly in the in the individuals that I dropped them from the from the relay and um, and uh, I said to him, you know, what what did you I've always wondered, and I never asked, what did you think when I dropped you from that relay in the World Championships? We had in Melbourne that year, I think. And and, uh, she said, we made a pact that we were never going to miss it again. And and I said, oh, that's good. That's what I sort of hoped you did, but I never really ever asked you you what, because they were were probably our two best $200. Yeah, they used to have some good ding dong battles, and sometimes that's the best thing, you know. I mean, I think they were like sixth or something. In you know, they certainly didn't win a medal in that four by two, and um, we was, qualified six for the final mm, in that in that one in um, Beijing. Yeah, 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 and I think the year before only finished sixth, you know, with our with our gun team. So it was the shot in the arm that they needed, and mm. and. Um, and sometimes that's that's what yeah we all need you know a kick up the the backside. Hey, um, the, talking about teams and stuff, I remember you know that there was a changing of the guards, wasn't it? You know, you mentioned O five, and our women just hit it out of the park uh, with medals um, and gold ones at that. But our men were you know we had an aging men's team through that lead up to two thousand four. So you had. A lot of young guys, Andrew Lauderstein made his first team, I think, in 05 and some others, but there was certainly a, a rebuilding phase. And Robbie and I, were, we, we mentioned it um, a couple of weeks ago and, and sort of talked about how difficult it is to get the men and the women um, hitting it at the same meet. You know, Australia's always sort of struggled with that. But you certainly rebuilt the men's team in that um, that Olympiad leading up to Beijing. Um, what, what what are your thoughts on that? Do you think there's anything that you do now that we haven't done? Or well, the thing I tried to do in those days was to try to get away from that. You know, I felt right from probably um, Athens, um, Atlanta onwards. There was always this talk of a women's team and a men's team. So I tried to not talk about a men's team and a women's team, talk about the Australian swimming team. Yeah. Um, and so that everyone felt part of the one team, not two teams within one, if you know what I mean. Um, I think the only one of the boys who came through from Athens was Hackett. Um, and he he uh, he was swimming quite well at that meet. He broke a world record in the 800, um, yeah. which was the world record that was set by Thorpe in... Um, uh, Fukuoka in 2001. That was a great race. That one with uh, Thorpe and Hackett. That was sort of the coming, the coming up for Thorpe and the coming down for, for Hackett. It was just a great race. And uh, you forget how fortunate we were to have swimming on Channel Nine at prime time. Mm. Um, that really, that really, uh, that really thrust swimming into the 
you know, everyone on those swimming teams up until that time was uh, household names, you know, the, those stars. And, oh, yeah, the public knew, knew them all, didn't they? Yeah, yep. And, um, and that's such a shame for the kids now because, you you know, you, you probably know um, Ariane Titmus and Emma McKean and everyone else falls backwards a little bit after that, I think, you know. Mm. Um, but, you know, um, but, yeah, I, I, I think you've got to try and... Uh, you're probably never going to have a system that allows you to do it all all properly, um, you know. As, and I suppose as long as the coaches are adept at um, the individualisation and having the pool space to be able to do the specific training those guys need for their individual events, men and women, um, you know, some event, some events you can combine men and women. You know, maybe a male breaststroker can can work with a um, a female flyer or something like that. I don't know, but um, you've got to try and have the individualization so you can can do those things. Um, and uh, you know, I think that um, yeah, I don't think we we did. I don't think we had it right. Um, probably still don't have it right, but um, but certainly we got a lot of new young men um, up the, up in that time, um, up through to to Beijing and. Uh, and beyond that too. So um, I think too, a lot of that, a lot of the uh, advantage we had was the amount of international racing we were doing yeah. uh, in that period of time as well. Uh, and yeah, that was only, um, we got good support from Swimming Australia there, but we had really good support from the AIS with you guys down there and, uh, and the state institutes who were <clears throat> funding swimmers as well. And, you know, I remember the horse trading we used to do was, well, I'll pick four of your guys, but you've got to send two more and all this sort of stuff. And, um, you know, we, we did that around, you know, in particular AS, um, but uh, around the state institutes as well. And, you know, New South Wales might have sent two or three kids and QAS might have sent three or four kids and yeah. Wace and Sassy and BAS might have sent one or two, you know. so But we sort of almost doubled the size of those teams in that period to go to, um, you know, short course uh, World Cups and uh, Murray Nostrum Tour and things like that. We had a, we had a lot of opportunities there. And we also, um, uh, we also had really good individualised preparation and lead up to the Olympics where everyone could do what they, they wanted to do. We had uh, meetings there of, um, of the coaches and everyone put in their individual plans. And then we, we negotiated and we discussed and we got to a point where, you know, I think every every person did what they had to do to uh, achieve what they needed to do. Um, yeah, I, I certainly, you know, the first thing I did with the budget at uh, the AOS every year was just put aside money for that overseas travel and comps and, and stuff like that before we went on any camps and, um, you know, that was, it was just put aside Mm. Uh, and and you know not just uh, as I think we were talking last week, Robbie um, wasn't just a learning thing for for the athletes, which they certainly you know benefited from, but um, coaches benefited from just being in that arena and at that level, watching the level of swimming and talking to the level of coaches and getting some you know thoughts outside of just the Australian bubble, you know, um, and, um, yeah, we're, 
you know, we're a long way away from everybody in Australia, and I think it's important that we don't get um, too insular, you know, so with our thinking. I think, too, it was a good opportunity when you took a young coach with you as well yeah. to pair them up with a more experienced coach. And you sort of, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, in the past, you know, you get coaches on their first team was an Olympics or first team was a world championships. And it was like, wow, what am I doing here? You know? And, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's also to getting used to, uh, you know, I, I used to call it, you know, being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, yeah. That's a massive, you know, massive importance. Practice. Practice not only swimming, but practice going on a plane and getting stuck in an airport for six hours and missing a plane or having a plane cancelled or having a hard bed or having, you know, the food not be quite right and mm. all that sort of stuff. So I think that, you know, we we had a, a pretty um, well-travelled group of athletes um, because, you know, Don travelled a fair bit, but there was a bit less of that um, when Don finished you know, in the lead up to 2004 and you had to really push to get out of the place you know, to, to do it. And, you know, I was lucky enough to get a few um, altitude camps and things like that. But it was, you know, and I, I always felt we needed to, to race, race more at a high level. And, you know, going through some of those meets in America uh, where you have, um, yeah, A flight of heats, B flight, C flight. So, um yeah, you know, so the you know, the the A flight of heats had started, you know, nine in the morning. The B flight had started at eleven, and the C flight had started one or something like that. And then if, if you're in the C flight and you made the final, well, then you had to come back at three o'clock in the afternoon. You might as well did not go. So, you know, that many kids at the meet. But, uh, yeah, the um, um, one of the things. That I th another thing, you know, that I think Australia does really, really well is travel, you know, because we just did it so so often and the distance that we had to travel, we just thought of so many things. And when I went to Europe, it was just something that was evident that they, they didn't give much thought to. Um, mm. And I actually think Europeans, you know, when you looked at Beijing uh, and, your, and even in Tokyo, their, their performance, I don't think... They move, they they travel east that well, you know, and because um, I don't think they practice it enough. They probably, as a as a you know as a group as a continent, they need to come our way a little bit more, particularly in those Olympiads that have a uh, yeah that are in Asia, um, and uh, so it'll be interesting. Yeah, you know, the next Olympics will be Paris, but obviously that that'll be different. But I, I certainly think. The Europeans swim better when it's in Europe, you know, mm -hmm. and I think the travel has got a lot to do with that. Yeah, I agree. I, I, yeah. I remember the World Cup, um, you're talking about races. Uh, Berlin, um, they, they'd have that meet live for the finals. And, and in my opinion, it was the best of all, all of them because it was fast pool. Everyone went there because it was a good meet. And um, so big. So to to get the uh, the finals on, which started at two, they had to start it even earlier mm. for the heats. And the women's hundred free was first event, and it's they're diving in the pool at eight thirty in the morning. So you had to be you know at the pool at seven seven o'clock, stretch and warm up, and then ready for the gun to go at at uh, 
8.30. And um, I remember there was a Canadian coach who first time he'd been at the meet <laughs> and he thought he was, so he was just going to waltz through. <laughs> and he says, as the lineup behind the blocks, and I had Angie Bainbridge uh, in, in the race and she was all geared up to go flat tap, you know, and um, he says, oh, what do you think it's going to, you know, make it, uh, you know, 54 plus make this final? I said, you'll be watching. <laughs> You're going to have to go under 53.5 to make this final at, at 8.30 in the morning, you know, and, um, and and you did, you know. So they're the sorts of things that, you know, we just, you can't get in Australia. And one of the things I've looked at in the last few years is our, all our Olympic gold medalists, if you if you take sort of from 84 onwards or even 80 onwards, the, the, the gold medalists have come from strong national events. So what I mean, like, yeah, in the 1500, it was, yeah, I think it was Hausman, it was third in the world and looking, you know, he was in the grandstand, you know, in Atlanta and, and mm. stuff like that. And uh, through the 90s and then, yeah, yeah, Hackett and and um, he he came through. So you almost had four probably there at one stage, and then yeah, with Jody and Libby and Alice and when Patria and Susie, and then you had um, uh, when Patria won in 04, There was Libby, uh, um, Shipper, Alice was fourth in that final and sixth in the world. Yeah, so so there's no. You know, and what I got from that is what you just said before. You've got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think those swimmers became comfortable regularly at a national level, whereas some of our standout athletes, and certainly, you know, in Denmark, um, you know, you had Janetta and, and Rega winning. You know, no one, Janetta was swimming 56 and no one else could break a minute, and, and Rega had win trying to breaststroke by uh, 20 seconds. Mm. But the one event that was tough was Panilla and Janetta in the 5300 free, and then Panilla goes on and wins. So um, my point being you have to have – and the U.S. guys have that, don't they? Mm. They, they Just that stand-up racing all the time, and they just get comfortable with people being beside them. Mm. And uh, – I think that's one of our. If we want people winning, we've got to have depth across yeah. those, those events. And I think one thing I found over the years too is, um, but I think there's still some protagonists that say no. Is uh, short course racing? Yeah, I think short course racing. You can you you've got to go fast to to be in the finals. You you can you can go fast even in in hard training. Um, yeah. And it, and uh, it's it's fairly unforgiving if you want to you know take it easy on the way out. You've got to you've got to go and go, and and it really helps the racing. Um, it, it it brings the field closer. And and look, I'll be honest. You know, in my early days as coaching, I, I didn't take short course serious enough. And um, certainly, I changed over the years and started going to World Cups. And um, it was great for the skills of. of yeah, Belinda Hocking and and uh, Angie and and the likes that I used to take, um, 
because I but think even short course him. yards. So so yeah. yards. See, this is uh, yeah another thing about the, the Americans that I've, you know, yards. Br- short course swimming brings the lesser swimmer up because a lot of times the lesser swimmer is really good around the walls. So it tightens the field, and then yards would even tighten it even more. Mm. So they end up with this good chunk of the season in tight racing. And then they come out, they do the long course season, and, and, and they're, they're ready to race the rest of the, of the world. I remember being at one uh, training camp one time, and we wanted to do uh, some time trials, and the only pool we had was a short course yards pool at this time. So we did all these time trials, and the, the coaches from the, from the pool we were at hanging around watching our guys train and, and they were you know getting electronic times and you know i can't remember the times that they were doing but it was like you know 19 seconds for a 50 or something like that and, yeah uh, um and and they were just going they couldn't believe the times our guys were doing and and we're sitting there going we've got no idea what is that good is that, <laughs> is that good I go, I go, yeah that's pretty good i <laughs> uh, love it Hey, um, you know, you know, I'm a, a Parramatta supporter, and have been, you know, since '82 uh, or '83. And Sterlo, he, he finished up um, the uh, the other day uh, with Channel Nine, and it, and I, I was listening to a few of the, his comments and stuff. The um, and I think he was saying that the interchange, how it's changed from when he played, you know. Um, yeah, you coached through uh, the suit eras, and you know that they kept changing rapidly, didn't they? And yeah. com, you know, two thousand and nine worlds, which we were both at, and I, I think of the, all the worlds I went to, it was probably my least favourable one. Yeah. Um, do you think you know the suits of that time had a detrimental effect on on swimming? You know, world swimming. Yeah, I think probably history will show. That it probably didn't, because you know I had this feeling when I left Rome in two thousand and nine that some of those world records would never be broken again. But essentially, most of them have been. Um, the one, the, the the one that probably disappointed me the most then, and and probably still does now, is the Thorby's four hundred free world record, mm. where Paul Biederman broke it by 0.01 yeah. in Rome, and it's still standing there now. Yeah. Um, um, so it's a that's probably a, the most disappointing one. Um, but uh, you know, I, I I think that um, when when the the probably the entry into that was the uh, speedo suit that that, that we had. Um, the difference was that everyone could get the speedo suit. Mm. You know, speedo decided that they were going to introduce a new suit, and it was nothing like the um, the jacket or the arena or those ones that came out the next year. Uh, but they made sure everyone who wanted one got them and had them in the lead up to the world, to the Olympic Games. And, um, um, you know, and they, they were expensive, but they were everywhere. Everyone had them. And so it made it an even playing field. But I, I remember being down in Canberra at, a, I think, maybe the orientation camp for the 2009 Worlds. And uh, we we had that train. It might have been a relay camp, or what, I'm not sure what it was. But I remember Vince standing me up um, in the meeting and going, 
yeah, we need to get these suits. And um, I go, well, I, I just don't know how to get them. Yeah. yeah. I got no budget to buy them. Um, Speedo aren't stepping up and making a new suit. And uh, I just didn't didn't know what to do. And, you know, Vince, Vince just gave it to me. And, uh, and and I look around the room and there was nine other coaches nodding their heads as well. And I got, if I can't do something here, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. And that was probably part of what got me offside with Swimming Australia as well. You know, yeah. there was a, probably a number of issues there, but, um, but that was one of them. And, um, and so I ended up going, um, going in. I, I found out all the contacts rang up all, all the coaches from overseas and found out who their contacts were for for whatever uh, suits, you know, and um, then ended up going to a training camp with um, Stolly in um, Varese and um, and set myself there and ended up meeting everyone from all the different uh, swimsuit manufacturers and they gave us all the swimsuits. Um the issue for us was that um, we only got them. I think we went to Manchester that year for a, yeah. our, our camp, and um, uh, I bought the suits in with us to there. We got um, we got iron-on stickers from Swimming Australia for put the logo on, and uh, and uh, yeah, it ended up becoming a real uh, point of contention between me and the hierarchy at Swimming Australia and Speedo. Um, but we, we needed to have those suits to even be competitive. But, you know, the, the, the suits, I think a lot of people just thought you put the suits on and you swim fast. Yeah. But one of the things they did was they floated you in a different way. Um, so your technique was different. You had to learn how to do that. And you really had to be racing in them, you know, sometime before that. So whilst we all, I think we had enough suits for everyone to, to utilise, um, we got them when we, yeah, we we didn't have much time to use them nah. before um, before the race. And some coaches decided they weren't going to change their suits. Um, even one of our athletes, who was you know pretty heavily sponsored um, by Speedo, decided to wear. Uh, felt that they couldn't um, be competitive if they didn't change suits, and so uh, put an arena suit on. And um, and swam in that, won the race, and we we texticolored all the arena out. It was a black suit, texticolored it all out, and put the badge on it, and all that sort of stuff. So we complied with all the rules that Swimming Australia had. Um, but in between the two laps, um, the black texticolor had come off the arena, and this speedo-sponsored athlete won the race and put the arms up with the arena right across the front. So. Um, that was probably the beginning of the end for me. Uh, I think I remember saying to the coaches that time, I said, if I'm here by Christmas, I'll, uh, I'll be very lucky. Yeah. yeah, I remember you saying that to me in Rome. Yeah. Um, but, that, you know, two things that I remember, like I was coaching Tani White and um, we were at the trials and she missed the world record by 0.02 for the 50 breasts. So we went 30.4. And no one else in the world was under 31 um, up to that point. And um, so we go to world. She's easily number one in the world. And uh, we try on this suit and she couldn't kick 
and keep her feet in the water. Because <laughs> mm, so like that. Yeah, because she was so efficient. She had such great line. It just changed everything. So she couldn't wear the suit, and she she ends up coming eighth in the final. Mm. Swims 30.4 or 30.5 and finishes eighth. Mm. They, they just, if she'd had it back in Australia. Yeah, we could have changed she something. Could have practiced and, mm. Yeah, and it could have been the difference. And, uh, yeah, and, and uh, you know, I remember having a discussion with the Speedo people telling them that they dropped the ball. Oh, they, they didn't like that. Yeah. Well, I um, the other... The hierarchy of swimming Australia. The other stat was um, Alexander Popov, who had the world record at the beginning of the year, short course for the 100 free. By the end of the year, he was ranked 46th in the world all time. And I remember Nick Frost was 45th, or it might have been 32nd, something like that, but I couldn't believe it. Like That world record he'd had for so long, <laughs> and 30-odd uh, people beat it inside a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I so, suppose the good thing is that the majority of those world records have now been broken. Yeah. And, um, and it's got us back to, uh, you know, an even uh, playing field now, I suppose. Yeah. Hey, um, it's been good. In, in wrapping up, um, I came across Roy Simmons the other day and he, he named his, his uh, five toughest players he ever played with. Um, and uh, most of them are Canterbury players, actually, yeah. uh, even though he was Penry there. Peter Kelly, Les Davidson, he wasn't. Steve Folks, Chris Mortimer, and a guy who I, I hadn't heard of, Greg Fernley from Cowra. So... Uh, oh. But um, I thought I'd ask you who are the the five best swimmers you, you that you didn't coach, uh, you know, who are the five best swimmers you saw in your era. Um, well, I suppose you got to you you got to say Thorpe and Hackett. They they, they were standouts. Yeah. Um, you know, I think um, it's, it's probably hard to to pick five, um, especially when it's just dumped upon you. But certainly that era. Um, you know, around that 2004 year where you had, you know, Jody, Alice, Libby, you know, they were certainly the great swimmers. You know, early on in my career, Susie O'Neill, uh, Sam Riley and Patria Thomas. Um, it's a bit like you say there, if you've got a group of kids in that strength in those events, um, it really, it really it brings them on, you know. You know, probably someone who doesn't get as much credit as the others is probably Skippy Hugel. Yeah. He, he was pretty good and Michael Klim. You know, but you know, I think too. Yeah, you got to you got to look at the coaches of those guys as well too, and and give them some credit for the way they they raced as as well. And um, you know, and I think we had we had some great coaches in those in those times as well, who were uh, um, you know certainly um, uh, you know great coaches for for those guys. You know, yeah. Um, Ken Woods did a great job with Skippy and, and the girls, you know, uh, Liesel and... Yeah, Shipper. Yeah. I remember yeah. The first, in Montreal, that, um, the Polish girl, um, Shipper was, you know, that was Shipper's first first one, I think, or maybe. Yeah. yeah I think it might have been her first. But she was uh, she was swimming really well and uh, and she uh, she came second in the 200 fly. The Polish girl reached out with one arm and, um, and uh, they somehow missed it. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, but you couldn't. Um, everyone was saying to me, "You got to uh, appeal the decision or put a protest in," and that. But there was no, 
no ability to protest against someone else doing the wrong thing. Yeah. And uh, and there was no ability to utilise uh, video in your in your, even if you had that chance, you couldn't use a video because the FINA wouldn't allow it at that stage. So, mm. uh, but you know, I, I suppose a positive thing out of that it probably um, probably drove Shipper to to be, to be stronger and tougher and harder. And uh, and I think she broke the world record in the Pampax the next year in mm. uh, in Victoria. You know, and so yeah, so maybe that negative turned into a positive for her. Um, but I, you know, I, I remember Shipper. You know, like her pre-race, her pre-race uh, preparation was reading a Harry Potter book on the yeah. cross-legged on the uh, on the massage table. Yeah, Bill uh, as a cucumber. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, you know that was that was always a good thing. But I think Ken. Um, Ken was pretty laid back too, so he he probably through his personality instilled that in, in his kids as well, you know. And uh, you know, it's uh, it's a shame that we we lose guys like like Ken and John Carew and Joe King, and um, you know, I know it happens, but um, you know, we've got to we've got to make sure that we you know, keep records of what those guys say and and do, and uh, you know, and we've got a couple of guys now who are getting to be a bit older, and so I think it's very important that we, um, you know, get uh, get people like Vince and Bowley and that to uh, share what they know and think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dougie Frost, um, you know, the experiences he had from a five-lane, you know, four-foot-deep local swimming pool to, you know, having probably one of the greatest swimmers we've ever had. You know, yeah. So, um, I think we need to, uh, you know, get those guys. Even if it's on the on your podcast, Robbie, just to just to have some insight into what they uh, what they think and do. Um, um, yeah, track down Reg to talk about Patria Thomas in in two thousand and four. I mean, she had a sensational meet in two thousand and four, and that came through from, you know, right right through from a few you know a few Olympics before that. So yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's there's this history there that we've got to capitalise on and not lose. You know, wouldn't you wouldn't you love to hear Joe King talk about Haley Lewis's seven gold medals in Commonwealth Games in 1990? Now, you know, and it's something the Americans again they do very very well with the history <laughs> and and uh, the respect of the people that have gone before them. Um, yeah, yeah. The older I've got, I think I was saying to Robbie. You know, I, I sort of never went that American route. I always went the European route um, with racing and things. But um, as I've got older, you, the management of the American swim team and their coaches and their swimmers and the way they – their ability to overlap their uh, athletes in, in eras so they don't have these gaps, yeah. um, th- they've done that very, very well over, over time. So – yeah, we've we've got a lot to learn. They're they're the things I think we've got to learn from from the Americans. One of the good things we we did too with that that travel. I I so the the meets that we went to in the US often overlap with the Murray Nostrum tour, or were maybe a week apart or something like that. Yeah. So there was quite a few times where I travel from Europe to America or America to Europe um, to um, uh, to to 
do both series of meets. And we had some athletes who, who did both as well. And talking about what happens to you sometimes in the, and get used to being uncomfortable, um, we flew one time from uh, Europe uh, through to, uh, uh, sorry, America, we're through from LA through to London. And uh, we're flying across, uh, flying across America. And there was, I think there was four athletes and myself and Bernard on the, on the flight. So we ended up flying and flying, you know, and going across America is just like going across Australia. It takes forever to, to get out of America. And uh, and all of a sudden we had this, uh, we'd just gone over the coast of Canada and we're in the, in the Atlantic and an announcement comes over that um, uh, there's been a medical episode from an uh, older gentleman and we need to turn around and go back and land um, in North America, and uh, we ended up landing at Goose Bay, which is the most east, easterly point in uh, Canada. And uh, and Goose Bay was a naval naval and uh, air force base. So we landed there, and uh, we couldn't get off the plane because it wasn't a real airport. So they ambulance met us on the tarmac. They took the black off the plane and put him into the ambulance and took him off. And while that had happened, then. It all, all the plane had frozen and I stuck. We couldn't take off. So then we had to de-ice the plane. And, uh, yeah, and we were probably on the ground for five hours, six hours, I reckon, sitting in the plane. No, uh, no food left, no more drinks left. And then we ended up taking off and going. And we were flying up to Milan. And so we missed our connecting flight in, um, in London. Uh, flew up to Milan on a later flight that night. Ended up getting into another motel up there. We, we, of course, the one they sold our rooms at the one we went to and lost our bags, got them back four days later, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, and and the kids were great. Yeah, the kids yeah. were great. I, I was probably most upset and, and learned from that experience that you need to travel with a spare pair of undies in your bag. But got to learn. No, it's great. Uh, good stories. Uh, well, listen, boys, I might jump in, Shannon, because I know we're going to wrap it up soon. You've got to duck off up to – where are you going, Bunnings or something? You've got to duck off to something too. I don't know. Al's got to duck off to something as well. I've got to click and collect for my um, grass seeds. <laughs> I've run out of grass. <laughs> oh. Al, if you ever get a chance to listen to our podcast, you'll know that it's a common theme with Shannon and his lawn and his grass that he's still – he's not quite conquering it. Uh, but he's, he's trying, God bless him. He's, he's still trying. Um, I can't go out without, you know, having you on without talking about Campbelltown days, mate. And obviously, uh, you know, as a member myself, I swam with you, um, you know, as a club captain, you're obviously a life member. And along with Justin, Bob McAvoy, um, you know, you guys created such a great culture and a team there that I still, you know, we still see the effects of that to today with coaches like myself, uh, Australian Paralympic Team coach uh, from Tokyo, Clinton Camilleri, Justin Rothwell, Shannon Poulton, uh, you know, so many, mate. Um, you must have enjoyed your time there. How do you look back on, on that? Obviously, we've talked a lot about international swimming and stuff like that today, but I think, you know, it's all rooted in, in what you did within the, the club culture too. Yeah. yeah, I moved around a little bit early on. I started working at Reesby with Terry Buck, as I said, and then moved on to um, Rudy Hill, then came to Campbelltown, and uh, um, it was an interesting, interesting time. Um, 
Campbelltown was uh, in 1987 was uh, what they used to call a satellite city of Sydney. So it was completely separated from Sydney, really, by by a freeway. Now there's houses all the way, all the way in between. And um, it used to, and I lived at Chipping Norton, and it used to take me 18 minutes to get to work in the morning, and probably 30 minutes to get home. Uh, now it'd probably take me. Well, by the time I finished at Campbelltown, it probably took me half an hour to get there and, and could take me over an hour to get home. So um, that's how big the city grew in the, in the time I was there. Um, but um, Campbelltown was an outdoor 50 unheated swimming pool uh, when I started there. And, uh, and it had been a summer-only program for all the years up until that stage. Um, Campbelltown Council decided to build an indoor eight-lane 25-metre pool, which was state-of-the-art in those days, and um, and they they decided to lease out the coaching rights because the young bloke who was the coach there was also a, a school teacher. He'd taken over from Bob McAvoy, and uh, he was a school teacher, and he was a deputy principal, and he just couldn't commit to the, what was required of the, of the new 25-metre pool. So I came in, took it over, and I think they were quite surprised that I ran a business out of it. They, they hadn't seen a business like that before. And uh, and then I had the, the members of the club um, were used to being a fairly social club, a summer-only club, as I said. Now we're going 12 months of the year and I wanted to be successful. So um, there was quite a few people who I yeah, had differing views with and there was a fairly substantial changeover early on with the, the parents involved and the you know, parents who wanted to be just a social swimming club to me who wanted to be a uh, to be a you know professional swimming club and uh, I was very fortunate to have people like John Saliba and um, uh, uh, Roy Rothwell who was Justin Rothwell's dad who were part of the old crew who could see the benefit for their own kids to have that sort of program running there and uh, and, it, you know, and it started off uh, quite small um, uh, but I, I uh, yeah, we grew it up to be, you know, quite a very, quite a big program, learn to swim program and uh, quite a big uh, swimming program. Um, but, you know, uh, yeah, the, we had a club room, which I turned into a gym. We had no money. I had no money. I was, I was just a scrapper coming in from uh, being a, you know, a school teacher. And, uh, and I ended up going down to the junkyard and, uh, I asked um, panel beaters. Sorry, I asked. I asked the bloke, the, the local solicitor, who where, where the best panel beater was, and he told me to go and see this bloke. And he gave me axles and lumps of steel. And he said, "Go down to the railway yard. They got all these big bits of metal down there that you can use." And so we started up our weight program with axles and lumps of metal and bits of wood and all sorts of stuff. So <laughs> Love it, it was uh, it was a real. Uh, interesting times but you know we 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 grew that to be uh you know top 10 age group and top 10 open team and um um you know right up to the sydney olympics and uh and then after that i got an opportunity to go to uh n swiss at uh at the olympic pool and uh i felt that you know at that stage if i didn't take that that would hold my career back as well so um it was a real shame. Like I said early on when we were chatting before this, um, the kids at Campbelltown were great kids, just really tough kids. Um, you know, we had some kids with some really great ability, uh, 
but we had some kids who who made plenty of age national finals with just sort of guts, you know, and um, and they trained hard. Yeah, essentially they did everything I wanted them to do, and uh, you know, and uh, I think that uh, whilst there was probably some tears and yelling and whatever you know that happens in those programs, it uh, it it turned out to be yeah. I think we turned out a great bunch of kids because I'm still in touch with so many of them uh, across the years. I still get a invite to a wedding now and again to, to go and you know, see these kids and they tell me when they have their own children. And, uh, you know, it's, I think we ended up with a really good thing. And, the, and Justin McAvoy, who was my assistant coach for a lot of the time I was there, uh, is still coaching still coaching at Campbelltown and that's that's a great legacy to have. And... Justin was a is still a full time policeman, and the number of kids who came out of our programs who who were put who are now policemen or swimming coaches is phenomenal. It's, mm. uh, so oh, that says a lot. That is, you must say that the, you've had a you've had a good positive influence on a lot of a lot of kids in Campbelltown, and uh, you know, and I still meet I still meet kids in the street, and they say, "Hey, you're Alan Thompson from Campbelltown." I say, "Yeah, that's right." And, uh, <laughs> I swam with you, yeah, and so on, and, uh, and you might not even know, but they uh, they know you, you know, and it's uh, you know it's 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 uh, you know I've got a really uh, soft spot in my heart for Campbelltown, and uh, you know I've still got a lot of friends from Campbelltown. I uh, you know uh, you know and I still I still see a lot of a lot of people from that time, uh, yeah, and they they always make time for me, so I always ensure I make time for them as well. Well, mate, well said. Um, you know, I, I can only thank you for all the time, you know, we spent at Campbelltown because obviously I don't think it goes without saying, but I wouldn't be sitting here having this chat with Shannon Rollis and Alan Thompson had I not have trained with you um, back in the day. And I, I can still remember getting out of the pool one afternoon and you take me aside and saying, uh, hey, you know, you've been hanging around a bit. Do you, do you want to start coaching? I said, oh, yeah, I don't mind. Yeah, yeah, that's all right. He said, we'll pay you. And I thought, wow, mate. It's jokes on you. I was going to do it for free. So I was, I was cheer. I was doing star jumps. I'm going to get paid to coach. Even still to today. Yeah, yeah. Even still to today, mate, I, I still remember that as, um, you know, I, I would probably find ways to, if I had to coach for free, I'd still find ways to do it. And I still sort of go back to that thought process. That's what I enjoy about it today. And, and it all, you know, all roads lead back to yourself and that Campbelltown program, mate. So I can't thank you enough. Um, we could probably talk another two hours about all that sort of stuff, but you boys have got to move on. So, uh, you know, Al, thank you very much for spending some time with us today. I really appreciate it. I don't think we hear enough from you and, and your insights around swimming. Maybe we can get him back on again, Shannon, down the track for a part two. Yeah. Um, I know there was definitely some questions we didn't get time to get to because we, uh, we, we talked too much, so we can get around to a part two. But, mate, thank you very much for spending some time with us. I really appreciate it. I think one thing that that is really needed for uh, for for swimming to keep on moving forward is to to know the history um, of the sport too, and uh, and I think you've now got a, a head coach who appreciates the history of the sport, um, but um, you know talking about you know, people not not knowing who Shannon was uh, when he came back from Denmark is um, it's just something that um, yeah. You know, the, the, the work that uh, you put into our sport and our country and the contribution you made is, uh, is something that should not be, should not be forgotten and, and not be known. And, um, 
And I'm not saying that non-swimming people can't have a great influence on what we do going forward, but they should they should have the respect of the sport to learn learn its history and um, and have that, have some of that knowledge with it as well. Yeah, well, the uh, there's plenty of those people out there, isn't it, Alan? You know, and uh, it's hard to know how to go forward if you don't understand how you got there in the first place. So, and also too. Um, yeah, you know, there was a lot of mistakes made to get to where we got to in 2008 and where we got to this year in Tokyo. So a lot of mistakes made, and and um, if you don't have the history, you just uh, bound to repeat those mistakes again. So um, absolutely. Um, so you you need the history to keep moving forward. Um, so uh, yeah, I think that's a it's an important thing for to remember. Well, yeah. mate, that's what this podcast is all about. So you, you're going to love it. You've got to listen to it. We just keep going back. 2004, we talk about Joni Hamm. We talked about Denmark. We've got Don Talbot's story still to come, mate. We're going to, yeah, that's that's what this podcast is is all about, uh, is is the history and the nostalgia and, and learning from the past. Because as you said, uh, quite rightly, mate, you know, there's a lot of things that can be learned um, from the past. So thank well, you, boys. Like Ian Hansen would be a great interview too. He's got... He's got just as many stories as me. He goes back earlier than me, like and that, yeah. you know he's uh, he's got some great stories there. Yeah, that's a good point. See, Shannon, there's another episode, yes. mate. And you were worried when we started this that we wouldn't have anything to talk about. Let <laughs> <laughs> uh, alone people listening. But anyway, we'll oh, see. Mate, they're loving it. They're lapping it up. All right, boys, thank you very much. To all the listeners out there, thank you very much for joining us once again. Make sure you hit us up next week on Wednesday for the Shannon Rollison podcast. But until then, have a great weekend. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.